All right, today's sermon title is The New Life, Part 3, Our Relationship to the World. And we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 4 through 14. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or... No, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Ephesians 5, verses 5 through 14. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for the things that you've prepared for us today to learn from your word, and for the good works that you've prepared for us to do while we remain on the earth. And use this time, God, to continue to train us, and to prepare us so that we can be mature Christians fully equipped for every good work through the teaching of your word, through the prophetic message of your word for us today. Be with us when we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so part one in this series was putting off the old self. Part two was putting on the new self. And part three is our relationship to the world. And starting in verse 5, Paul talks about this inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This refers to the final destination for those who by the grace of Christ have been adopted as children of God and who will spend eternity with Him. This inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God has to do with eternal life. The kingdom of Christ and God. Now, what is the opposite of this, Giacomo? Do you know? The opposite of heaven. Uh, hell. Right. The opposite of light is? Dark. Right. Hell, sometimes called outer darkness, is eternal separation from God. So there are only two possible final destinations for every soul. There's not an intermediary, intermediate purgatory place where you go and then you can kind of work it out once you know for certain that, you know, now I'm going to follow God because I've seen his, you know, whatever. Now I'm going to, in this afterlife, work out my way to earn my way back into heaven. There's two possible places when you die and when you leave this life and go into the next. One is heaven and one is hell. And so in saying this, Paul is saying those who are sexually immoral or impure or covetous 
which is the same thing as being idolatrous because idolatry is what? Well, but what is it, idolatry? Like the, you know, you think of like paganism, idolatry, yeah, worshiping false idols. And when you covet, that's becoming an idol in your life and you're loving that thing more than God. So it's the same thing. So when Paul's saying, those who are these things, who are sexually immoral or impure or covetousness, they have no inheritance in the kingdom. What he's saying is their final destination is not heaven. It is hell. Now, this list, these aren't the only things that will keep you from heaven. 1 Corinthians 6 has a longer list of things. It's a similar list. You know, it mentions some of these things, but it also mentions additional things like stealing, interviling, or being a swindler. Those things will also keep you from heaven. But really the point is that even one sin would keep you from heaven. James 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The point is that God is holy, and as soon as we've sinned once, that one sin has made us too impure to be in the presence of God. So any sin would keep us out of heaven, but Paul is calling out these ones specifically, and it's because of the relevance to those he's speaking to. Um, Benson commentary says that these things that he mentions here were commonly practiced in the pagan temples of the day as a form of worship to their false gods. And so because many people in these churches in Ephesus had come out of that religion, had come out of that faith, Paul is specifically pointing out those things to say those have no place in Christianity. Those aren't a form of worship in our faith. Those things, those people who do those things, have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, very important here, Paul isn't warning Christians about this so they'll become afraid of their own salvation. He's not saying Christians who struggle with these things are at risk of not going to heaven. Remember, this is the same Paul who wrote Romans 6 through 8, where he talked a great deal about the Christian struggle with sin, the Christian's mentality, how we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, but how we're still going to struggle. And then Romans 8, where he says, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. So to the Christian, he would say, the struggle's real, keep fighting it, but there's no condemnation for you. So that's what he would say to the Christian. What he, so he's not warning the Christian here. What he's saying is the people that do these things, the people that are these things, are the ones that have no inheritance. It's an issue of identity. So he's not saying Christians who struggle are going to not go to heaven. He's talking about the people who don't just struggle with these things, but who are these things. Look at the phrasing in this verse. Everyone who is sexually immoral, who is impure, who is an idolater. He's making a distinction between us and them. The Christian and the world. And we might be uncomfortable with that because we don't like having an us versus them mentality. But Paul's doing it here for a very specific reason. And we'll see that in verse 7. But just on this one verse, I just want to make it clear. He's talking about identity here. 
So the last few weeks we've been talking about this new life, right? So put off the old self, put on the new self. And here he's not saying, now, if you continue to struggle with these things, you won't go to heaven. Because that would change the entire gospel message, wouldn't it? If after you've been converted and you've believed and followed, if then you think if you sin too much, you're going to lose it, that really turns the gospel into a gospel of works, not of grace. So what he's actually saying in this verse is, those who are these things are not Christians. They have a different identity than we do. We, as Christians, are a new creation in Christ, and new life has begun. So if we struggle with these things, that's not who we are. And this is the one thing that I say very often to Christians in 12-step programs. Because as much as those programs are helpful, when you say present tense, I'm an addict, or when you say present tense, um, what's that phrase? Once an addict, always an addict. The problem is I've heard people in that group begin to say things like, I can't help it, it's just who I am. And as a Christian, we're not supposed to ever be in a place where we say, I can't help it, it's just who I am. Go to 12-step for an addiction, get help, get accountability, get support, but then say, that is no longer who I am. I still struggle with that, but who I am in Christ is a new creation. There's an identity in our mind, and even Paul says this when he says in Romans 7, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin in me. Because as Christians, we need to have a different perspective on ourselves. God sees us differently. And we are no longer the person who did those things. We're a new creation who is still struggling in the meantime with those things. So it's very important to make that distinction. Okay, so in this verse, verse 5, Paul is saying, those who are these things don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. They're going to hell. Then verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is on these people. It's way different, again, than how Paul talks about Christians. Paul doesn't say that the wrath of God's on Christians who still struggle with sin, does he? That wouldn't make any sense when he says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So again, he's not talking about Christians here that are struggling with sin. He's talking about unbelievers. The wrath of God is on them. And he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. In their day, as well as ours, many seek to deceive with empty words to where we no longer see sin for what sin is. In this context specifically, talking about people in the world, people who are sinners by nature, it's still their identity, those who have not yet been forgiven, and I say yet because we're hopeful, who have not yet believed, but too often, people will try to deceive us into not seeing this distinction between believer and unbeliever. And today we're told things like, really loving somebody means not just accepting them, but approving of everything they do. If you really love somebody, the world would say, you can't just let them be them on their own. You have to take up their flag and support them and approve of everything they do but only if it's a fashionable thing. So like today, for example, if you want to reject your gender of birth, 
Real love in today's culture would mean not just saying, well, you, you do you, but marching with them and supporting them and promoting them and approving of them and rejecting those who don't. But if you're a serial killer, it's not fashionable to approve of that and support that at this time. Maybe one day, not yet. But the point is, according to the world, according to the world, love looks like approving of whatever anybody does that they desire to do as long as it fits into these categories that the world likes. And so Paul would say, don't let them deceive you. That's not what real love looks like. We've got to see things the way they are. Sin is sin, and those who are not forgiven still have the wrath of God on them, and they don't yet have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, why is Paul saying these things? Wasn't he talking about us before, about us putting off the old self and us putting on the new self? So why is he not talking about the world? What's that got to do with us? Well, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. The King James says, do not be partakers with them. The New Living Translation says, don't participate in the things they do. So, don't pretend like you're still the same as they are. You've put off the old self, you've put on the new self, and now don't continue to participate in things that you now know are sinful that you used to do that maybe the world still does around you, those that you know, your friends, your family, don't participate in things that you know God is not pleased with because you have a new identity. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean separate from the world, move into the country, eat a lot of peaches, I'm sorry, that song, start a commune and have no association with the world anymore. That's not what he's saying. Paul is specifically talking about the sins he just mentioned and in the area of things we now know are sins, don't participate with the world in those things. Remember, Jesus himself ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. He was around them, he was with them, but he didn't participate in sinful activity when he had those associations. He was with them, but spiritually he was separate from them. Again, it's an issue of identity. Look at verse 8. For at one time you were, doesn't say you were in darkness, but you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. At one time you were darkness, and now you are light. If you're a believer, so walk as children of light. And he clarifies what he means in verse 9, and this is so great. Walking as children of light means your actions produce what is good and right and true. The way you think, the way you react, the way you speak, the way you behave are examples of what is good and right and true. And this might be different from how people knew you before. You know, people might know you differently before and, and maybe the kind of jokes you would make. Um, and I've struggled with this. My, you know, my brother and I, for example, make, have made some pretty off-color jokes as part of our entire upbringing together that we've both kind of moved on from now, but there was this awkward stage in between 
really feeling convicted about, like, I probably shouldn't be joking that way anymore. But with him, it was like, we've always joked this way, though. And so, but what Paul is really saying here is, no longer do those things. If you know what is good and right and true, that is what you should exemplify in all areas of your life. And so seeing this distinction between darkness and light and choosing to live and walk as children of light, you were once darkness, but now you are light. And now, when you go back into dark places, you bring light with you. Like the picture of the man, you know, he's walking out of the cave to, towards the light, but a more accurate picture would be as if he was coming back into the cave with light coming out of him. That's more like what it's like, us being in the world. And then you represent what is good and right and true, and in so doing, you're bringing light into darkness. You have people in your family who are not believers. I'm just guessing. You have friends in your life that are not believers. And you do them no good by not associating with them anymore. That doesn't help them at all if you just shut yourself off from them completely. You do them a great disservice by doing so because you have the only truth that matters. The only way to salvation is in you. And so disassociation, like these you know, hippie communes used to do, doesn't help anybody. Instead, we should continue to associate with them, but recognizing that we have a different identity now. You're with them, but you're spiritually not the same anymore. And while among them, you should not be participating in any kind of sinful activities, but instead, you should know what pleases God, and you should represent that in front of them. Now, Paul isn't writing this just for our sake as Christians. Obviously, there is the issue that, you know, we don't want to be tempted by sin and protect yourself from that and, you know, don't be around those that would bring you down. Like, there's, there's some truths in there, but, but Paul is saying this for a different purpose. So he's talking about the wrath of God upon those who are sinners and how we shouldn't participate with their activity, but there's a purpose behind this for Paul. There's a reason why he wants us to have this new identity fresh in our minds when we associate with those who are not yet believers. There's a reason why he talks about light and darkness and how we are to walk as children of light. We begin to see that purpose in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So first, there's this reiteration in verse, from verse 11. Don't participate. Don't take part in it. But then he adds this new thing. You know, there's the negative and the positive. The negative is don't do this. The positive is instead do this. So here the negative is don't participate in those things. And the positive is instead expose them. Well, expose what exactly? The unfruitful works of darkness or expose those who do the unfruitful works of darkness? And then what does the word expose mean? The King James Version says reprove, which is actually a more accurate translation of the word, but there is a reason why most modern translations say expose instead of reprove. The word expose can mean more than one thing, can't it? But today, when you hear someone say, I'm going to expose something, that normally means they're going to make something public that the world might not know, right? You might think about like exposing corruption in the government or exposing fraud in a company, or exposing somebody who did something bad. I'm going to expose it. 
So some might read this verse and think that what we're supposed to do as Christians is walk around exposing everybody who's in sin. All of our friends were expending, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. But that's not the way Paul means it, and I'm going to prove that to you. We see in the next verse um, a clue at this. Verse 12 says, It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. It wouldn't make sense if Paul was saying in one verse, expose them by publicly telling everybody what they've done, than to say, it's shameful to speak of what they've done. So that can't be what he means. Do you see that? He can't be saying in one verse, shout from the mountaintops what they've done, call out their sins, expose them publicly, and then saying, it's shameful to do so. Right? So he's not talking about that kind of exposing. So whether we use the word reprove from the King James or expose, Paul isn't saying that we as Christians need to always be walking around pointing out the flaws in others. There's something else Paul means by this, which is why I think expose is such a great word, actually. But not the way we normally use it, but instead in terms of light exposure. And so perhaps an even better translation, in my opinion, would be illumination, illuminate them. This is really the best way to understand verse 11. If you look at the surrounding context, before and after this verse, Paul's talking about light and darkness. And even in this verse, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Bring them to light. Illuminate them with light. So the last question is, bring what into light? The unfruitful works of darkness or the people that do them? Well, it's the people. And we'll see that in the following verses. Again, from the context, it really is the people. And it's important to understand this. Paul is not saying when you're with people in the world, don't participate with them in darkness, but instead publicly announce all their faults. That's not what Paul wants Christians to do. It's not what we're supposed to do. What he's actually saying is, your purpose in the world is to not separate from the world. It's to be in the world, with the world, among the world, going through life in the world, not participating in these works of darkness, but instead illuminating them all with light. And then in verse 13... keeps going twice on me. I don't know why it does that. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So even if the more correct word in verse 11 is refute, the meaning is clear. Paul is talking about illumination, bringing to light, exposure, not being judgmental or better than. Now, remember how he defined light in verse 9? Good, right, and true. So the real idea here is that we have this new life. We are to put off the old self, put on the new self, and then we're to recognize we have this new identity. We were darkness, now we are light. Therefore, how do we relate with the world? Well, don't participate in sinful activities, but also don't just hang out with Christians all the time. Be in the world. Expose them to the light. 
If you really are doing this, this good, right, and true thing in the world, you are illuminating the world with light, and they'll notice. Because we're children of light, and our lives are to be characterized by what is good, right, and true. And this does end up refuting, doesn't it? Like the King James word refute. When you're in the presence of sinners, and they're joking about something that's really kind of sinful, and you can no longer laugh along, and you're not judging them, but it's just you know how God feels about that now. Or if someone sees you in a situation where you could have easily lied to get out of a problem, and you didn't, and you owned up to it, these kinds of things that are different than how the world typically responds, you end up illuminating light all around you, and it does refute, it does convict. And the purpose, I love verse 14, because it shows the purpose of all this. The purpose of all this wasn't you protect yourself from sinners and make sure you stay holy all the time. And the purpose wasn't pulling out everyone's flaws so that you can be better than them and they know that they're sinners. The point was, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. When we live this way and we're shining light on people, that's going to result in their salvation. Everybody in this room and every Christian alive today has been saved because somebody else illuminated them with Christ's light out of them. That's how it works. And as we go through this life and we are practicing what is good, right, and true in the world, and God's light is shining out of us and it's illuminating on them, that's what results in more people awakening and rising from the dead when Christ shines on them. So this is our relationship to the world. Part three of the new life. No longer participating in sinful activities, but remaining in the world, in relationship with those in the world, so that our new life is on display for them, so that we become beacons of truth, lights of what is good, right, and true, and with the hope that they will be attracted toward the light within us, which is actually Christ shining out of us. So, as we enter into communion now, the Lord's Supper, like normal, we can be grateful for what God has done for us, be grateful for the salvation He's given us, and also, we can be praying for those in our lives that are not saved yet. Some of them are very challenging. Sometimes we don't know why God has brought everyone into our life that He has, but they're in our life for a reason, and that reason is so that we can shine the light of Christ in the world.